Well, after a month and a half off, we're finally back into our Romans sermon series. Do you remember where we left off last month? It's kind of hard to remember, isn't it? We were in Romans uh, chapter 7, and there Paul confessed, it was quite lengthy, but to summarize it, Paul confessed that he knew the good he ought to do, and yet he didn't do it. But add to that, um, not only did, were there things he, bad things he didn't want to do, he actually did those things. <laughs> Christian, you've experienced this, haven't you? Paul wrapped up chapter 7 with these words. You remember what they were? He said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In chapter 8, Paul tells us how God delivers us through Christ. And in chapter 8, Paul turns his focus upon the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Only four times so far in the first seven chapters of Romans does he speak of the Holy Spirit. Now in chapter 8, he speaks of the Holy Spirit 21 times. I want to get that right. And in our passage alone here this morning, 11 times, 12 times he speaks of the Holy Spirit. Today he calls him the Spirit of life. question for you is this. Has the Spirit of life given you life? Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great word to us. It comes to us at just the right time. Uh, we are a people who are in need of hearing how your Spirit gives us life, that we truly can honor and glorify you. We pray that your spirit would be with us to open our eyes to this truth, that, that your spirit may apply this to each of our hearts individually as you would see fit. Uh, we desire this work, and we need this work. Thankfully, you desire it as well. Uh, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, how do people change? I mean, really change in a way that honors God. I mean, we can all change for selfish benefit, right? Be nicer to the boss so we get a pay raise. Uh, you know, change our diet so that we can lose a few pounds. You know, maybe look good in the mirror, maybe get a date, who knows, right? 
But how is it that people are to experience real, God-honoring transformation? How do we become the people God is calling us to be? Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments how? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. How are we to see that in our lives? Well, there's a number of different approaches. We're going to look at uh, three approaches here today. The first one is the stop it approach. And we're going to see here, it's a little bit long uh, video. It's a skit with Bob Newhart. Uh, some of you don't even know who Bob Newhart is. Found that out the other night. At a certain age, you don't know who he is, okay? He's hilarious, all right? So a funny skit. And uh, his approach to change is, well, just stop it. Uh, Dr. Switzer? Uh, yes, C come in. I'm just, just washing my hands. Uh, I'm Catherine Bigman. Janet Carlisle referred me. Oh, yes. Uh, still being a very alive in a box. Yes, yes, that's me. <laughs> Should I lay down? Oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't do that anymore. Just, just have a seat. And uh, let, let me uh, tell you a, a bit about our, our billing. I, um, I charge $5 for the, for the first five minutes. And, and then absolutely nothing after that. How, how, how does that sound? That sounds great. <laughs> Too good to be true, as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, I can I can almost guarantee you that that our session won't last the full uh, the full five minutes. Now um, <laughs> we don't do any insurance billing, so you would either have to pay in in cash or by check. <clears throat> wow. Okay. And uh, and I I don't make change. All right. <laughs> and go. <clears throat> go. Well, tell what? me, tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just, I start thinking about being buried alive, and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No. No, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes. Yes, that's it. All right. Well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm... Uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most, we find most people can, uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, you're there. Stop it! Stop it? Yes. S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. <laughs> stop it. So, I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you... you, you you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds, sounds frightening. <laughs> it is. Then stop it! I can't. I mean, it's been with me no, since no, childhood. No, no, no. No, we, 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 we don't go there. Just, just stop. So I should just stop being afraid of being buried alive in a box. You got it. Good go. Well, it's only been... It's only been three minutes, so that will be um, uh, three dollars. Well, I, I only have a five, so. Well, I, I don't, I don't make change. <laughs> then I, I guess I'll take the full five minutes. Fine. All right. Well, what other uh, problems would you would you like to address? <clears throat> Whew, uh, I'm bulimic. I stick my fingers down my throat. Stop it. <laughs> 
some kind? Don't, don't do that. But I, I'm compelled to. My mom used to call me... No, Daddy. no, no. No, we, did, we don't go there. But I've been having this dream. No, we don't go there either. But my horoscope did say... We definitely don't go there. Just, <laughs> just stop it. What, what, what else? Well, I have self-destructive relationships with men. Stop it! <laughs> you, you want to be with a man, don't you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, yes. Well, then stop it. <laughs> don't be such a big baby. I wash my hands a lot. That's all right. It is? I, I wash my hands all the time. And there's a lot of germs out there. Uh-huh. Yeah, don't, don't, uh, don't worry about that one. I'm afraid to drive. Well, stop it! How, how are you going to get around? Get in the car and drive, you, you kook! Stop it! You stop it! You stop it! What's, what's the problem, Catherine? I don't like this. I don't like this therapy at all. You're just telling me to stop it. And, and, you, and you, don't, you don't like that? No, I don't. So you think we're, we're moving too fast, is that it? Yes. Yes, I do. All right, then let me, uh, let me uh, give you ten words that I, I think will uh, clear everything up for you. Do uh, you, you want to get a pad and a pencil for this one? All right. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. All right, here are the ten words. Stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box! pretty funny video, right? Uh, but it highlights the futility of human change. You know, saying stop it will only get you so far, right? Uh, there's always someone in your life telling you to stop it, but when it comes to their behavior, like washing their hands all the time, they, they're blind to it, right? Um, now, some people think that that's what Christianity is. It's about coming up with a nice list of prohibitions and then uh, all these firm commands to just stop it and do the right thing, right? But that's not Christianity at all. This stop it approach is good in the sense that it at least acknowledges there's change that needs to be made. But the problem with it is it's powerless. It's powerless uh, to give you the ability to stop, nor does it give you the proper motivation. And then there's, uh, there's another approach. There we go. Uh, and uh, approach number two rejects the, the change that we need. And Miley Cyrus a couple years ago came out with this song, uh, you know, we can't stop, and we won't stop. And, um, well, I can't really show you the video <laughs> for reasons that will be kind of self-evident here. But uh, there's Miley Cyrus, some pictures from her video. You know, she's uh, changed She's changed quite a bit since her Hannah Montana days. Um, for some reason in her video, she always has, like, this, her tongue hanging. I'm not quite sure why that is. Perhaps she's quite proud of her tongue. But anyway, just a few snapshots. Here is the, here's some of the lyrics, all right? Here's what she sings. She says, it's our party, we can do what we want to. It's our house, we can love who we want to. It's our song, we can sing if we want to. It's my mouth, I can say what I want to. And we can't stop, and we won't stop. Can't you see it's we who own the night? Can't you see it's we who about that life? We can't stop, and we won't stop. You know, when confronted with the fact that they're not living the way they should live, many people say to you, who are you to question me? We can't stop, and we won't stop. You know, this mindset has been with uh, this mindset has been around for millennia, right? You remember the Epicureans? Maybe you don't remember them. They were around a long time before us. Their mantra was "Eat, sleep, for tomorrow we die." Right? Um, typically, a younger person is like typically is drawn in by this way of approaching life. You know, usually by the time you get a little bit older, you come to realize, you know, that that selfish abandon uh, never really materializes into the life a person is looking for. Now, the problem with this approach, though, is it ignores the truth about humanity. It ignores that we have been made in the image of God to know him, to reflect his glory, to serve his purposes here on this earth. But then there's a third approach. It's the way of the gospel. 
Here we see that God empowers the believer to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. We need God to do this. For apart from God's work in our lives, we will not have the desire or the power to experience change that honors him. Paul's going to show us this this morning, that God accomplishes this through the third person of the Trinity, and Paul calls him the spirit of life. What we're going to see this morning is that the spirit of life gives power to overcome sin, and we're going to see that in three areas. We're going to look at the freedom of the spirit, the mind of the spirit, and the indwelling of the spirit. First, the freedom of the spirit. You know, something that fascinates the heck out of me, and maybe you too, uh, are black holes. Like, I've never seen one, but I hear they exist. And um, the fascinating thing ab- about them is this, is that it was once a huge giant star, but it's all collapsed in on itself. And, and, it's, and, and it's so powerful that its gravitational pull sucks all kinds of things into it. Um, a, a black hole has what's called an event horizon or a point of no return. And, and once anything crosses over it, even light itself, there's no way for that to escape and to get beyond the event horizon. Martin Luther, way back during the Protestant Reformation, described human nature this way, as if it's hopelessly stuck on the dark side of a black hole. I didn't use that word. I didn't even know what black holes were. But... Here's what he says. Luther described our born with human nature with the Latin phrase incurvatus in se, which means to be turned in or curved in on oneself. It's a theological phrase describing a life that is focused inward towards self rather than outward towards God and others. Scripture tells us what? That we were made by God, for God. That we're originally made with a nature that was thoroughly turned what? Upward and outward. But Luther says that because of original sin, our born with nature is so curved in on itself that we even bend the best gifts of God for our own pleasure. You ever experienced that? Now, I know some of you will take exception to what I've just described. They'll say, are you saying that I can't do any good? I'm not saying that people don't at times do good things, that we should pat them on the back. The world is a better place because people give to charitable causes instead of giving towards their walk-in closets. But tell me if this is not true. Is it not possible to give to charity with curved-in motives? To do the right thing for the wrong reason? See, there are billions of people living on this earth who have good intentions, but their horizon is ultimately turned in on themselves. God isn't the one for whom they live for uh, or to give glory for in the way they live their lives. Now, in verses 1 through 4, Paul gives us an explanation of how we're ever going to escape this ongoing, curved-in existence. God has done something amazing for us. Look at verses uh, 1 and 2. Paul says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Please understand what Paul is saying here. There is something now for the believer. If you are in Christ, there is now for you no condemnation. Sounds great, but what does he mean? Condemnation has two important aspects. Condemnation is a judicial term, which includes both the guilty verdict as well as the sentencing. When a judge says to a criminal, you are condemned, what does he mean? He means that the, the, for the rest of your days, uh, you, will, you will carry a, um, a, a guilty conviction upon you, but you will also, for the rest of your days, be imprisoned. It's both of these things. And so here's what Paul is saying, that in Christ Jesus, there's such great news that God has made you free. Yes, from the guilt of your sin, 
but also from your imprisonment to it. You following me? There's now no condemnation. Those old ways of thinking and living that you experienced before God opened your eyes to him, those old patterns that seemed just so natural to you, God has freed you from that. In verse 2, he says how this is all true. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul here points us to the third person of the Trinity. He gives him a spectacular name. He calls him the spirit of life. Do you really long for life? I mean, life that feels good deep down to the bones. Life that is full of joy, while at the same time, a life that, is, that you're not in need of, of remorse or repentance. Well, God the Father has made that life available to you by the Son through the Spirit of life. Paul uses some interesting words. He says, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What does he mean by law? Well, here he doesn't mean law in the sense of the Ten Commandments or other rules like that. The Greek word translated here could also be translated and is in other places in the New Testament with the word principle. There are fundamental principles that exist in our world. For example, help me finish these sentences. What goes up must... All right, I know we're Presbyterians. Come on. What goes up... A penny saved is... Two wrongs... But three rights makes a left. Think about that one. Okay. That was corny. I didn't even get any corny. All right. So the law of sin and death refers to this principle we've been talking about, how original sin has imprisoned all mankind so we can't help but live curved-in lives. And the situation is this. Unless God does something, every human being will suppress the truth about God and go about living as if he really doesn't exist, even if they say they really do believe in God. And every human being will live for their own glory and enjoyment at the expense of others. And the best people can ever offer up is a, I won't stop, or a, stop it. But the spirit of life powerfully opens up the gospel, wherein we experience the transforming power of God upon our lives. Paul writes that the spirit of life has set you free. Understand this, the verb tense in the Greek is one which signifies a, 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 a done event in the past. It's been accomplished. This, it's, it's a one-time event. If you are in Christ, he, uh, the Spirit of God has set you free. It's been done for you. It doesn't need to be done again. In verses 3 and 4, we see who's responsible. Look at verse 3. It says, for God has done what you and I are powerless, listen, what you and I are powerless to want to do, or even to do, God has done for us. What is it? Here we read that God the Father sent his own son in human likeness, in human flesh for sin. Now notice Paul didn't say that Jesus became sinful in his flesh. No, Jesus, yes, he was fully human, but he was also fully divine. So, so Jesus wasn't born with a curved-in nature like you and me. Every thought, word, and deed was done in perfect love and obedience to the Father. He obediently went to the cross. He obediently died on the cross for our sin, for your sin. Every time you ignored the right thing to do, every time you denied the existence of God, every time you judged someone, every time you gossiped, every time fill in the blank, Every time you or I succumb to the power of sin and death, whether we meant to or not, God condemned our sin on his son on the cross. And so know this, Christian. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's been done for you. You have been set free from the guilt of sin as well as you've been delivered from the power of sin upon your life. That is what Paul is saying. 
Does that not capture your heart? Does that not capture your imagination? Doesn't it cause you to trace out all the myriads of different ways in which this can transform you here and now? That's what Paul is meaning to do in this passage. You know, before coming to faith in Christ, all your so-called deeds never escape the event horizon of your own curved-in existence. But now, now you can do and do do all kinds of things that please God. That's what verse 4 is about. There's a reason why God freed us from ourselves. What does it say? In order that. That's a purpose clause. Every time you see those in the Bible, you go, okay, God has a purpose for something. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, that is, live, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. All Paul is saying is that now, because we've been freed from the imprisonment under this principle of sin of death, we are actually set free to live God-honoring, God-pleasing lives. We can do it. And so, Christian, hear me loud and clear. God delights in you. You know, so many Christians live life walking around with their heads hung low as if they can never make God happy. If there's just one more to-do list things to do and then finally God will smile upon me. But that's not God's view. There's no condemnation. You've been set free. You have the spirit of God in you. Your heart says, I want to honor God. And guess what? Most times you do. And, and when you don't, he still loves you. Stop beating yourself up. If you're in Christ, you've been set free. He delights in you. And you actually do please him. He's pleased every time you seek to honor him. Whether you succeed or not. Next week we're going to look at that. We're going to see the spirit of adoption. We're all sons and daughters. Let me summarize this first point. God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He has set us free to live in a totally new, thriving way. Our problem is that we're weak in the flesh. That's our fallen nature. That's what's been holding us captive. But God sent his son Jesus to take on our guilt of our sin. And God has freed us uh, in Christ Jesus that we can now really truly live for him. And because of this, we are now not powerless to live God-honoring lives. The Spirit of God has, comes into us and dwells in us that we may desire godly things. And he empowers us so that we can actually do them. Not for the mind of the Spirit. First, let me make something clear. The Holy Spirit has a mind. The Holy Spirit is a he not an it. The Holy Spirit isn't an impersonal force that you tap into like a Jedi Knight, right? All three persons of the Trinity have personhood. I know it's confusing, uh, but let's not drift into New Age here. The Holy Spirit is a person, and he has a mind, like the Father and like the Son. Yet his role is different. Simplistically, it goes this way. We can say that the Father willed your salvation, and we can see that Jesus accomplished your salvation for the Father, on the Father's behalf, but it's the Holy Spirit that applies the salvation to you. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit breaks through the event horizon of your curved-in existence. He breaks into you, opens your eyes, gives you a new heart, causes you to bend your eyes outside of your own self-absorbed life, look to heaven, repent of your sins, trust in Christ, and, and desire to live for God and for his glory. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, this has happened to you. The Holy Spirit causes us to gaze towards heaven and see Christ. And he causes us to, to desire to walk in the ways of God here on earth. In verses 5 through 8, Paul compares and contrasts the way of the Spirit with the way of the flesh. Now remember when we talk about flesh, we're not talking about our fleshly bodies. We're talking about that sinful nature that we've been discussing. Cranfield called, describes the flesh as our fallen, egocentric human nature. Once again, it's Luther's description of our 
fallen nature being deeply curved in on itself. Paul wants us to understand that all believers have been given a new mind. Uh, This mind is the, the mind of the spirit of life. So he contrasts these two mindsets. Your mindset, once again, is is how you're conditioned to to see the world in yourself. It's how you gather data, place value on things. And based on your mindset, you think and you act the way that you do. Let's look at how Paul contrasts these. I borrowed the headings from John Stott, but the, the rest of it's pretty much mine. First, our mindset expresses our basic nature as Christians or non-Christians. How so? See, there's only two ways to live on planet Earth. Do you see that in our passage? Either according to the flesh or according to the spirit. Those are the only two options, right? In verse 5, Paul describes it this way. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. Please understand that Paul isn't saying that people are like this way because they think this way. No, people think this way because that is what their nature is, right? Our thoughts flow out of our nature. People either have a mindset, a nature that is fleshly and sinful, or they have a new nature given by God, and that comes with a new mindset, the spirit of life. Your nature determines the mindset that you focus upon. So to live according to the flesh means that you have your mind set on things of the flesh. Not that you don't at times think of nice things or lovely things, but ultimately you are turned inward on yourself. Your interests are selfish. Your mind is set on earthly desires. Remember when Peter got all up in Jesus' face when Jesus told his disciples, you guys, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Remember that? And Jesus rebuked Peter. Jesus used the same word here. He said, your mind is not set on the things of God, but on the things of man. As one commentator writes, he says, Peter wasn't being desperately wicked, but he was looking at things from a completely worldly point of view. Paul is saying something of the sort about fleshly people. They may have good intentions, but their horizon is bounded by the things of this life. The flesh is the focus of their whole life. My friends, the work of the Holy Spirit is to set us free and to set our minds on things that are above, beyond our finite selves, to a holy and good God who created this universe and created us to experience his goodness and his glory. So there are only two types of people on earth, those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit. Secondly, our mindset has eternal consequences. Verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Those who live curved in lives are dominated by spiritual death. They're alienated from God in this life and in the age to come. C.S. Lewis wrote a remarkable book called The Great Divorce. Uh, It's a good read. I think you might have a copy on the book table. Uh, it's not about marriage. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, uh, it's about the divorce or separation of people in the afterlife. People are divided into heaven and hell. And Lewis masterfully portrays the characters in hell as people who are forever deeply curved in on themselves. And it only gets worse and worse throughout eternity. But those who have been set free from the curved life by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit They enjoy an existence in in heaven of ever opening up to the greatness and glory of God. Can you picture that? Heaven will be one long continuous experience of you becoming more and more like Jesus and delighting more and more in the goodness that God has created and coming more and more alive in the spirit. That's what's coming. Thirdly, our mindset concerns our fundamental attitude towards God. Look at verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God and does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You know, there are many who give hardly a thought to God, but no doubt think that at the end of the day, well, they're okay with God. They couldn't be more mistaken. See, to take the mind that God gave you and the body that God gave you 
and do with it whatever you want? Is that not destruction of property? <laughs> Is that not thievery? And if we do this with, with God's good gift of body and breath, is that not hostility towards him? You know, God says to every human heart, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And in their curved-in state, people in hostility say, well, what's in it for me? Right? So our mindset concerns our fundamental attitude towards God. Those with the mindset of the flesh live in hostility towards God, even though they might think they're not. And those with the mind of the spirit live with peace with God, even though they might think they're not. Lastly, there are those who cannot please God and those who can. Verse 8, those who are the flesh cannot please God. Okay, that's pretty clear. Okay, all right, on to the next point. All right, uh, Paul implies here a contrast. Those who've been set free by the Spirit can please God. We've kind of talked about that already. A curved and fleshly existence can never please God. Such people have neither desire to honor God with their lives nor the, nor the, nor the power to do it which is why the gospel is so wonderful. God sends his spirit upon people to give them new life, to fundamentally change their nature, to cause them to break out of the event horizon of their own life, to experience the grace and goodness of God, to give them a new mindset that's open uh, to the laws of God and designed to fulfill them. And he does this because he places his power in us. That's our last point, the indwelling of the spirit. We see this in verses 9 through 13. Remember when Jesus said that he would send the Holy Spirit not just to be with his people, but to be in his people? He said that. Uh, well, Paul here speaks of that reality. Verse 9 and 10. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. First, look at the synonyms. The, the Spirit is called the Spirit of God as well as the Spirit of Christ. Also, to be in the Spirit is synonymous with God dwelling in us. And then also, to have the Spirit dwelling in you, verse 9, is the same thing. Check this out. I'll let you make the application. It's the same thing as having Christ in you. Oh, that we would believe that. Paul elsewhere says, the mystery of the gospel, Christ in you. Oh, that we would appropriate that truth this morning. Here's what Paul is trying to get us to know and delight in. The distinguishing characteristic of the true Christian, which sets him apart from all unbelievers, is that the Holy Spirit dwells in him or her. In chapter 7, Paul wrote, of the sin, quote, which dwells within me. Now he writes of the spirit who dwells in him too. John Stott says, indwelling sin is the lot of all the children of Adam. But the great privilege of the children of God is to have the indwelling spirit to fight and to subdue indwelling sin. Paul wants us to understand what life looks like now for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, isn't it true that you genuinely want to love God and honor him in the things that you do? Isn't it also true that you often fall flat on your face even when your intentions are holy and good? That's what Paul's getting at in verse 10. If Christ is in you, and he is, then although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. When Paul says that the, that the body is dead because of sin, he, what he means here is that the Christian has a mortal body. It's still subject to the effects of the curse and the fall. As Dr. Lloyd-Jones put it, he was writing as a physician as well as a pastor. He said this, I know this won't be much comfort, listen closely, the moment we enter into this world, we begin to live, we also begin to die. Your first breath is one of the last you will ever take. 
the principle of decay leading to death is in every one of us. Yet, at the same time, God has made us alive in Christ through the spirit of life. That is what he's getting at. Paul is saying, our bodies are decomposing. Uh, the old sinful tendencies they always seem to creep in and get at us. Um, in that sense, we are, we are dead in our bodies. Yet at the same time, God has placed his spirit in us. The spirit is life because of righteousness. The Christian, though her body is decaying and is subject to ongoing sin, she enjoys the benefit of the spirit, a mind and a body that's being made alive in Christ. Paul says something amazing in verse 11. He says the Holy Spirit is also the spirit of resurrection. How was it that Jesus was raised from the dead? How did it happen? I mean, Jesus was dead for three days in the tomb. His body was beginning to decay. His heart stopped beating. His brain stopped functioning. He was undergoing the, the condemnation that we deserve. Jesus was three days in to an eternal life sentence. <laughs> he was dead and there's nothing he could do to rescue himself. But God did what? He sent the Spirit. The Spirit of God came upon Christ dead in the tomb, and gave life to him. Now ponder this, Christian. Paul is saying that the same spirit which resurrected Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that gives life to dead bodies, dwells in you if you're in Christ. Think of all the ramifications of that. Think about what it says to you. It says that God cares so much for my dead, curved-in existence that he is willing to send the same spirit that raised his son to glory into my life so that I can experience the this, this same transforming reality that my Savior Jesus experienced. The spirit of God dwells in you. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in all Christians. It also means that there's hope. So it's a day to come. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead physically, so to us. Raised to a new life, a new existence. And I think when, when Paul says, you know, we need to set our minds on things, we need to be reminded. Uh, the, the, the troubles of this world are so quick to cause us to turn our minds back in on ourselves, right? We're so quick to let the difficulties and the ailments and the whatever, the problems of life, to cause us to go back to our old curved-in way of looking at things and thinking of things. Paul wants to remind us that there's a resurrection coming. We've already begun to experience it in Christ. You are a new creation. But the best is yet to come. That hope has been implanted in us. So how do we respond? Maybe you're here today and you don't yet believe. My hope is that as you're sitting here, the Holy Spirit is doing a work of breaking through into uh, your, your little sphere there, and he's opening your eyes to your need for him. Your desire is now to come to Christ and to repent. That's my hope. That's the proper response if you don't yet belong to Christ. For most of us, though, what are we to do? We already do believe. You know, Paul doesn't come out and really say what to do. When you look through all the way through Romans 8, it's, there's not a, not a single imperative saying, Christian, go do this. There's not. Romans 8 isn't about what we're to do. It's about what God has already done for us. So in order to understand what we can maybe do, we kind of have to tease that out. First, kind of makes sense. Let us not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Just because the spirit has set you free doesn't, doesn't mean we always honor him. Doesn't mean we always set our minds on things above. Temptations abound. But the spirit dwells in us. And the power of the Spirit is what transforms us. You know, Christians need to become less like cars and more like trams. How's that? Well, a car, you fill up with power. You fill up with energy. You put a little gas in it. 
And you drive wherever you want, right? But then you run out, and you find yourself maybe on a, I don't know, gravelly road in the middle of nowhere. A tram, I was in San Francisco on sabbatical, a tram is always connected to the power source, always connected to the grid. Yeah, a tram can't go crazy steering off the road and, you know, land in a ditch. Um, but the power always has, the tram always has the source of power connected to it. What does this mean for Christians? It means that every waking moment is a moment to be like a tram, to be connected to divine wisdom and power and glory uh, that the Holy Spirit brings to our lives. So we must simply do what we were created to do, set our mind on things above and live them out on earth below. That's one point. Another one, we're getting close. You see in verse 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We become debtors. That's what we are. We're debtors. That's another word for that is obligation. What does Paul mean when he says we're not debtors to the flesh? What does he mean? Listen, I know maybe drifting off. It's getting a little long. Understand this, Christian. You are no longer a debtor to the flesh. What if that old boss, that difficult boss from that last job or the job before or the job before that called you up this afternoon and said, Christine, I need a report tomorrow morning on my desk. What would you say? Watch what you would say. All right. What would you say? You'd say, I don't owe you anything. <laughs> you no longer have power over me. I've been set free. So too, Christian. We owe the flesh nothing. We've been set free. When temptation comes rising up, when your doubts and fears begin creeping into your mind and your temptation to go, is to go back to that old way of living, you say, no, I owe you nothing. I've been set free. I'm setting my mind on things above. One last point of application. Verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The gospel delivers us into an entirely new way of living. Let me summarize what Paul is saying here. He is saying there is a, a kind of life that leads to death and a kind of death that leads to life. Remember the kingdom of God is upside down. It's backwards to the ways of this world. Our curved in nature, and our curved in nature, when we're living that out, we think that we're really finding life. But in the end, it leads to death. And yet, when we follow in the leadership of the Holy Spirit, what looks like death really is life. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. My friends, the, the phrase here, put to death, although it's not an imperative, he's not saying do this. He's, Paul is saying when we put to death, this is active language. This is you and I doing something. This isn't like, you know, uh, let go, let God, you know. Holy Spirit, I hope you help me today. You know, no, this is Holy Spirit, lead me, and then I am following you where you are leading me. Put to death. This is mortification language. This isn't, uh, you know, let linger in the back corner of your life, right? This isn't, you know, keep it on life support just in case you need this bad habit for later, right? This is put to death, right? Jesus said, if your eye offends you, causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now he's speaking in hyperbole. He's saying our attitude towards our own sin must be so vehement that we're willing to do whatever it takes to put it to death. Christian, are there things in your life right now that the Holy Spirit is pressing on your heart that you need to put to death once and for all? I'm reminded uh, in the book of Joshua where God said, go in and drive out all the people in the land. There can be none left. And yet the people did what? Left people in the land. And what happened uh, was God promised they would be led astray. In a similar way, we must put to death all that clings to us. We must 
stop being, I'm sorry, we must, <laughs> there we go, it's in our nature. Uh, no longer can we be defensive of our sins. We need to be offensive to put it to death. That's what Paul is getting at. But note it, it's not in our own strength. No, it's what? What does Paul say? He says, by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. By the Spirit. This is the Spirit of God working in you. He desires to do this, right? It's not like you have to plead with Him. Holy Spirit, please help me overcome sin in my life. No, this is His desire for you. And it's the power that He gives you. He opens our eyes to our sin. He allows us to take ownership of it. To be repulsed by it. Uh, to pray that God would strip it away. To, to lead us away from it. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And when we yield to the Holy Spirit, guess what? Expect the sin to be put to death. As we approach the Lord's table, can we come with thankful hearts? Can we come being reminded that what this, this, this meal reminds us of? It reminds us that, yeah, we, we've, we've been set free from the guilt of our sin. And that's a beautiful, wonderful thing to experience. But we've also been set free from our imprisonment to sin. It's a done deal. It's been done in your life, Christian. You now live a new life in Christ. You've been set free from that old way. Your, your heart and your mind has been turned upward towards God. Trust that as you endeavor to walk in the Spirit, He will lead you. And in doing this, you will find life and peace. My friends, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. Um, oh, that we believe it. Oh, that we wouldn't just file this away as an interesting message, but rather you would work in the words, even as we walk out of here, that we would allow you, Holy Spirit, to give life to our mortal bodies. We are nothing apart from you. We're dependent upon you. We're foolish to think anything else. By your grace, God, fill us with the full measure that we may honor you and glorify you in all we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.